0: go to these networking events and just leave feeling very disappointed, like almost like I was a loser, like it was my fault that I didn't meet the right people. I found that actually, it wasn't that I was the problem, it's that the events were the problem. So I said, hey, instead of going to these bad events, I'm going to learn how to host my own good ones. Welcome to the Midland Money Mindset. This is a podcast that's all about
1: getting your mind right when it comes to all things money. In every episode, we go deep with engaging guests who provide tangible takeaways and a whole lot of joy along the way. I hope you enjoy these conversations as much as I enjoyed having them. Let's dive into today's show. I'm Larry Sprung, your host for the Midland Money Mindset and founder and wealth advisor of Midland Financial. Today's guest is Nick Gray, serial entrepreneur and best-selling author. Nick Gray started and sold two successful multi-million dollar companies, Flight Display Systems and Museum Hack. Over 75,000 people have watched his TEDx talk about why he hates most museums. Nick is also the author of the Two-Hour Cocktail Party, a step-by-step handbook that teaches you how to build big relationships by hosting small gatherings. He's been featured in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal, and in addition, New York Magazine called him a host of culturally significant parties. Listen in for some great takeaways about Nick's journey of building and selling successful companies and using his love of cocktail parties to help grow businesses. Well, I have the pleasure of having somebody that I just met recently at the last FinCon, FinCon 2023, joining us today, Nick Gray. He's a serial entrepreneur and best selling author, and I can't wait to share a story with you. Welcome to the show, Nick. Thanks for having me. This is going to be fun. Yeah, I'm so happy we got to meet and I knew about you heading into FinCon and meeting in person was fantastic. And before we jump into what you're up to today, which we're going to spend a good amount of time on, can you tell our listeners a little bit about your journey? I'm always fascinated. I know they're always fascinated with the entrepreneurial journey of how somebody ended up becoming an entrepreneur. So what's your story?
0: A few years ago, I started a company that was very strange and different. So I might be the only person on the pod that used to work with museums. And I never thought that I would create a multi-million dollar company working with museums, but somehow I did. But it all started, I grew up in an entrepreneurial household. My father had fried chicken restaurants. He was always hustling and thinking about how to better the situation for our family. I started a company in college. I tried to start a company after college. None of those really worked out. I ended up working in my dad's business to help him grow his company for many years. And through that, I moved to New York City. And very randomly, I started giving these weird tours at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. And that's where my company, Museum Hack, came out of. Should I talk a little bit about that and what that business was?
1: Yeah, well, we'll dive into that in a minute. So it seems like you were an entrepreneur from birth, for the most part.
0: (laughs) It felt like I was in that mindset. Even as a young kid in middle school, I had a lawn care business. I was trading baseball cards. I really had that mindset of being an entrepreneur.
1: Amazing. So you mentioned Museum Hack, which I want to talk about. And I think the ironic thing here is you were a guy who hated museums, right? Yes. So, how does a guy who hates museums come up with a company and found a company called the Museum Hack?
0: A woman took me to the Metropolitan Museum of Art. It's the biggest museum in New York City. Sometimes it's the most popular museum in America based on visitors. But nobody really goes, at least my friends in New York, we never really went there like regularly. It's the type of tourist attraction place. And this woman took me to the Met on a date. It's like our third or fourth date. She was planning it. And she just talked to me about the art and the objects and the sculpture at a very easy to understand level. And it unlocked within me. It sounds silly, but I just started to get curious about the space. And I was like, wow, this stuff is actually really cool. So. (laughs) I then started to go back to the museum on my own. Whenever I had time or was in the neighborhood, I'd pop in. And when my friends would come visit to New York City, I'd show them the cool stuff that I found. And I just love that. I love showing them the stuff, the weird stuff that I found throughout this museum. And I started to bring my friends there because I've been I was hosting events and I started to host little meetups at the museum. But they were very non-traditional kind of renegade. And when I say renegade, what I mean is like, this wasn't a tour of art history. This was basically like 10 cool things I found and then three things I wanted to steal. So like, <laughs> that's the level that my tour was on. And then a right. business, a huge business built out of that, very much against, I never thought I'd create a company out of it, but it did happen.
1: Wow, that's amazing. So if something you didn't like, You're introduced, you became curious, and that's all she wrote, it sounds like.
0: Yeah. I think that's kind of what made it a little successful was the fact that I didn't come from an art history or a museum background, that I had a fresh set of eyes to approach a new business and to approach a thing in a totally new way. People really connected with that. Yeah, that's amazing. Now,
1: you turned Museum Hack into one of Inc 5000 fastest growing private companies in America and that also subsequently landed you a TED talk and then you sold the business. Can you share a little bit about that journey cuz a lot of entrepreneurs go through this journey and some of them have intention on selling, some of them have no intention on selling. Some people don't even have an exit strategy.
0: It's a business
1: that they enjoy. So, can you share a little bit about your journey and that path?
0: Sure. I, like I said, never thought that I'd make it into a business, but had a lot of interest from people and begrudgingly turned it into a company. I think what helped make it successful was that this wasn't my first rodeo. I had an entrepreneurship background, so I knew the idea of delegate and elevate, meaning to help hire people so I could work on growing the organization and serving more people. Eventually, yeah, we grew. I think the most top line revenue we did was around $2.8 million in sales. And we were growing at a fast pace. So that helped us to be able to rank into the Inc. 5000 of the smallest growing businesses. And that stuff is fun. We got written up in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, all this stuff, because it was a sexy thing, these weird museum tours. Eventually, I sold the business in a very weird way as well. It was a seller finance transaction that sold to my then CEO and marketing director, who came to me with the idea of buying the business because they had ideas on how to grow it in ways that I just frankly wasn't able to. And I'd been doing it for eight years. I never thought that I would sell the company, never just imagine who would buy this company. But we structured a really unique deal for them where they could put no money down and if they were successful, then we would all win. So that happened, and the deal closed in 2019.
1: Amazing. So you had no intention of initially selling. You didn't even think it was a saleable business when you started it.
0: It's such a weird company. I mean, who would buy like a museum <laughs> tour business? It's a very strange idea. Certainly, there were things that, yeah, you were talking, most business owners don't have an exit plan or strategy. I'm curious, when you talk to people or when you've heard people speak about that, what do they tell you or like? what do they tell you they wish they would have done? or What's the common advice for that?
1: I think very common, you find that people get into a business because they enjoy it. It's something that energizes them and gives them a lot of energy as a result of it. So selling isn't necessarily in their thought process, but one of the things that we try when we're working with families that are business owners, even if they don't have an intention on selling, we try to have them treat the business as if it's something they're going to sell down the road, have the financials in order as if they're going to sell it down the road. Because in the event of some unfortunate issue in their life, whether it's health or family, if they're forced to sell it and then they have to get all that stuff in order, it's a much more difficult process than if you have it in order already. So I think that tends to be the biggest challenge when you're talking with a family. They have a business, no intention of selling it, and you're trying to impart upon them the importance of having everything prepared for a sale, even though they don't want to sell it, but it's helpful for them to do that. So I think that gets overlooked quite a bit. Were you prepared for this sale or did you have to do things to get it prepared for this transition from you to your CEO and the other buyer?
0: You give good advice, which is to get people to think about eventually, even if you don't want to, that's such a good piece of advice to say, hey, How are your numbers going to look? Even if you don't, you know, just spending a little bit of time because the reality is most people spend zero amount of time on that. And just spending a little bit is a game changer. My situation was unique because I was selling it to the then CEO and marketing director. They knew everything about the business. And I mean, warts and all. And that helped, I believe, because yeah, we had to do a lot of sales forecasting. We had to do a lot of analysis. I think the thing that we ended up spending a lot of time on was the legal agreement because it was a seller finance transaction. We spent a lot of time on how that would be structured. Most businesses are a sale. It's an easy boilerplate process. This wasn't exactly that. So we ended up spending a lot of time and money on that side.
1: Yeah. So that's something very common to our type of profession in financial services. A lot of times there's seller financing Mm. involved with those transactions. So it's something or, you know, there's some kind of earn out over three, five years, something like that. So it's fairly commonplace in our profession. So we're very familiar with it as a result. So listen, I've heard you say that today's audiences, and an audience could be somebody you're talking to, it could be an audience for your business, whatever your product services are, have to be entertained before they can be educated. How can business owners use this concept to grow whatever they're offering, whether it be a product or a service?
0: I hate to say it because it's so cliche, but audiences today don't watch long YouTube videos. They don't listen to 50-minute webinars. They're scrolling on social media and short-form video for those little sound bites. One of the easiest things that you can do is to think about your hooks. And you know this if you've done short-form video before, but what is that hook that you have? What's that capture moment in the first three seconds of anything i worked to because i like to play on social media so i do all the channels and i've worked with some firms who really helped me to think about my messaging in terms of hook what is that first three seconds thing if you don't capture them in three seconds they're just going to keep scrolling and i think that makes it very difficult if you've never had to think about your messaging in terms of hooks it used to be all about like what's the elevator speech? What's the elevator pitch? You have 90 seconds. Oh my God, that does not work anymore. Now it's got to be in the first three seconds. So what's that first thing that you say that would get somebody to stop?
1: And is that really how you entertain them? Or are you entertaining them in that now you got their attention and now you entertain them even a little bit further before you educate them? Or is the hook the entertainment enough?
0: When we were leading our tours at Museum Hack, we found that we wanted the audience to participate and to ask questions and be engaged. And yet we couldn't do that unless we had shown them a good amount of value within the first few minutes of the experience. That value meant to entertain them, to make them laugh, to move them around, to show them some interesting stuff. So I say that idea of you have to entertain before you can educate because so many museums, our focus on education, you have to learn this about the art, it's about this history and that, and that just gets people to glaze over, right? Maybe even in financial literacy, we know this from going to FinCon, there's so many great ideas that if people just learned a little bit about retirement planning, investing, managing their debt, paying down their debt, that would help them so much. But oh my god, you talk to people about that, and they just glaze over, they tune painful. you out, it's painful, Right. So, how yeah. can you capture them? How can you get that hook? That's what's interesting.
1: And was social media your biggest tool for driving people to your services at Museum Hack? Is that really where
0: the lion's share of the participants came from? Our viral growth at the beginning came from word of mouth. And I did that by spending two years building my tours to be the very best experience possible. So, like the first tour that I went on was horrible, right? My friends were just like, oh my God, what is Nick doing? <laughs> but after two years of working on it on nights and weekends, handing out surveys to people, doing questions how can I improve? What was your favorite part? What was your least favorite part? I think I built a really unique product. And I built a product that I was so proud for my friends to go on. It was a product that I was personally very proud of. And building that great product first, I think, is what helped us to be successful. We ended up getting a lot of our sales through things like TripAdvisor and Yelp. Social media helped, certainly, but where we really grew the business was on B2B sales and things like that.
1: And I'm sure there were a lot of great reviews to help support it. So when people read those reviews, it just made them interested in doing that. Because I think, to your point, when most people think about museums, they think about being educated boring, dry. And most people aren't into that. When you have 9 million things pulling at you that are entertaining, that you need to make it entertaining. And that was really the draw that pulled people in because it was an entertaining way to actually learn some stuff, right?
0: That's literally what our hook was. Our hook was museums are freaking awesome. And (laughs) trying to talk about them in a totally new way, we found was helpful to reach all new audiences.
1: And I'm sure the fact that the founder didn't like museums before he founded the company didn't hurt either.
0: (laughs) It's a good story. It's a very good origin story. (laughs) Yeah, very much so.
1: So let's shift a minute now to your newest endeavor, your recent book, The Two-Hour Cocktail Party, How to Build Big Relationships with Small Gatherings. Now, I heard that the author of Atomic Habits, who I talk about, quite often on the show, James Clear, because we're all about getting better and improving. And if we improve 1% every day, just that little bit and compounding over time, just like investing, it's not all about getting a return. It's about using that compounding, that eighth wonder of the world to help you out. We heard him describe your book as a must read for anyone who wants to host a great event. So before we dive into that, can you share
0: why you wrote the book and what's the messaging behind it? Messaging behind my book was I found that everybody wants to know someone who hosts a great gathering, who brings people together. And the secret is that you can be that person. This is a skill that you can learn how to do. And it was a superpower for myself and my entrepreneurial journey to grow my network and to build my business. So I wanted to share every single thing that I've learned, very practical and tactical, like the exact scripts of how to text your friends or neighbors, exactly what to buy, a minute-by-minute breakdown of how this happy hour event would go. But similarly, that started via word of mouth. I had a Google Doc that got shared amongst friends of everything I learned from hosting hundreds of events, and that Google Doc turned into my book eventually. Now I'm on a mission to get 500 people to host their first event. I think we need more community, we need more gathering. You and I know we went to FinCon, we thrive in those Mm -hmm. environments of sharp, smart people. And I'm trying to help people make that in their own lives. I want to
1: take a quick break from the show to talk to you about our latest best-selling book, Financial Planning Made Personal. It breaks down complex financial concepts into simple, easy-to-follow steps that anyone can understand. Everyone has a unique financial journey, and this book can help yours. Do you have your copy yet? If not, please go to financialplanningmadepersonal.com and order one today. And I have one more question for you. What did you do today that brought you joy? So the whole idea is you want to get people to gather together more and build relationships and friendships first. And is it ultimately to drive business or is it more to drive those relationships and gathering? Or is it both?
0: I think it's both. I hesitate to call these networking events. There's a lot of people who use them for networking events, for sure. But I've used them in my own life for just building my own friend network. As we get older, it's much harder to make friends. And we need community. We need a good, healthy peer group. What I can say is that for true entrepreneurs, you're definitely not selling to your friends, right? You're not trying to abuse your relationships with friends, but you like to do business with people that you like and trust. And that business comes out of these. And whether it starts as an acquaintance or a loose connection on LinkedIn, these gatherings, call them parties, happy hours, cocktail parties, whatever you want to call them. These gatherings help advance those relationships at scale in a very easy way. And it's not rocket science. Your listeners have probably hosted a happy hour or maybe a dinner party. Most people try to start to host a dinner party. I actually found that a dinner party was much more complicated. Even though it was less people, it was so much harder and more stressful. And that's why I'm trying to get people to host a happy hour. By the way, it's not about drinking alcohol. I don't drink alcohol myself, (laughs) but we call it a happy hour or a cocktail party because that's an easy to understand, simple, lightweight gathering.
1: Expectations
0: are kind of set. Yes, it's setting those expectations. That's what it's about.
1: I want to talk about FinCon because I saw you host the opening at FinCon. And, man, the energy that was in that room that you generated was amazing. And now you mentioned a minute ago networking events. And you are self-proclaimed someone who sucked. You said you sucked and hated networking events, right? So how does somebody who sucked at attending networking events End up the life of the party and the author of the two hour cocktail party.
0: Isn't that funny? It's true. Same thing. I hated museums. I hate networking events. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I see a theme here. What else don't you like? I mean, there's a theme, right? You all these things get a I business don't like. out of every one of them, I guess. It's true.
0: I moved to New York in my late 20s with the idea to meet people, to build a network, to be around all these people. And I tell you what, I would go to these networking events and just leave feeling very disappointed, like almost like I was a loser, like it was my fault that I didn't meet the right people. And I found that, like after doing this half a dozen times, I found that actually it wasn't that I was the problem, it's that the events were the problem. They were in these loud, crowded bars, oftentimes way too dark, way too loud. There were no introductions. You didn't know who was part of the group. It just wasn't set up. For somebody like me who wasn't a full blown extrovert or didn't drink a lot and was courageous to go network, just wasn't successful. So I said, Hey, instead of going to these bad events, I'm going to learn how to host my own good ones. There's a problem, and I'm going to fix this for people like me. So I started to experiment with hosting my own events. I'd invite half people I knew, right? So maybe six or seven people I had met that were my friends, and half brand new people people I connected with on LinkedIn or happen to meet, friends of friends, something. I didn't know them yet, but I wanted to meet and kind of connect with them. And I'd mix that group of people up and lead activities to help them get value out of attending. That's one of the secrets is that these parties work well because everybody who attends gets to meet a lot of new people. Not enough people think about that, that we're trying to add value before you ask for anything from anybody. So that's kind of a little bit of the origin story. And now I've helped hundreds of people host their own. I'm like, this is something I deeply, deeply believe in. Yeah.
1: And it sounds like it satisfied that not full extrovert in you because you had half the people there that you knew and were familiar with, and you only had half new people that were there. So it gave you that level of comfort to kind of get
0: started. I think so. I think so. It it made me feel more comfortable. Now the reason that a listener should use this or think about this is that you never know where your next deal, employee, business partner, relationship, you never know where that could come from. But studies have shown time and time again that the best relationships in life don't come from our very best friends. Our best friend is not likely to actually introduce us to a new business deal. Most deals come from our extended network. That's your connection of loose ties or what people call weak connections. It's that random person on LinkedIn who happens to be looking for a new CFA. It's that friend of a friend who mentions, oh, I think they're hiring over there. That's what we're trying to build and nurture and develop. And I think that these parties and events are an amazing way for you to build your network like that. So let's talk about those
1: loose connections for a minute. I mean, why do you think that those tend to be more successful than those closer connections? And I guess subsequently, I'll hit you with a two-question-at-once kind of thing. Are the goals of hosting these events really predominantly to get those loose connections there, or do you want the tight connections there so that they can introduce and expand your network to the loose connections?
0: I'll answer that first one about who to attend, and I would say that it is really about those loose connections, because you're looking to figure out, do I want to get to know this person more? Do I want them to come back to my events? Do I want to build a relationship with them? I have found that many people, this probably happens to you, Larry, oh, Larry, I heard you have a podcast. I'd love to go out for coffee sometime and pick your brain and learn about that, right? (laughs) Right all the time. <laughs> the reality is is that you're a very busy guy and you're probably not going to say yes to an invite like that or if you do it's very rare. However, if that same person were to say, "Hey Larry, I've met all these interesting people in town. I know some of them actually like hockey like you do too. I'm hosting a happy hour. I'd love to introduce you to some of my friends. Can I send you the information?" That is a much more likely chance. (laughs) Yes, yes. That is a much more likely chance that you would say yes, right? Because they're adding the value first in that instance. Mm -hmm. Certainly at my parties, I invite some of my close friends who I see all the time and I want them to be around and meet some of my other friends. But I focus more on those new connections and not to get too businessy or salesy to say that there's a friendship sales funnel or something like that. But I think about that idea of the top of the funnel, that as we're meeting all these interesting people in our life, how do we actually get them to trickle down into creating a relationship with them? And the reality is, is that for many of us, we're way too busy, we're way too focused on work, we just don't have enough time to have dinner with every single amazing new person that we meet. What if instead you could filter them into a happy hour, invite them all, keep the connection going, warm it up a little bit, It's a really scalable method that I found that's worked for a lot of people that everybody should consider and try it at least one or two times.
1: So let's talk about that for a minute. What is the time commitment? All in, in terms of inviting, getting a place, getting everything set up, executing the event. In your view, what's the time commitment from A to Z
0: to get that event done? The short answer is the actual party itself is about two hours long. So It's very intentional that in the time it takes you to watch a movie on Netflix, you could host a gathering for 15 to 20 people that just might change your life. So that's day of. Day of, let's assume it's two or three hours. The prep work does take a little bit of time, but I'll say this your first party will be the hardest one that you do. It's just like if you've run or if you've learned a new sport or training, the first time is always the hardest. But I'll tell you this there's a woman whose name is Tanya, she lives in Seattle. She read my book. She's now hosted four events. She has a cool business that does these stroller mom workouts in the park. She's built actually a really good business out of that. I wonder
1: if she hated stroller mom workouts before. but
0: (laughs) She said, look, I've hosted four of these now. And the last one I did was the easiest event I've ever hosted. I had all my box of supplies. I knew exactly what to do. I invited people. It just worked. I can put a party together these days in about an hour or two with inviting people, sending RSVPs, reminder messages, but your first one might take you four hours
1: or so. Yeah. I guess it's about just building that template, seeing it, executing
0: it, knowing that it works and then just replicating it. Right. The thing is, is that anyone can write a book to teach you how to host the most amazing party with incredible dinners and decorations and all that stuff. But that is probably a party that you'll do exactly once and you'll never host it again because you'll be too stressed and too burned out afterwards. I've come up with what I believe is the most repeatable, easy to replicate formula that you could do once a quarter. And for most entrepreneurs listening to this, that is probably what I would recommend, that they should be hosting some type of an event or little meetup or gathering about once a quarter.
1: And should these include people who are already using their services or products? Or should this all be new people? Or is it a combination of both where you bring some newer folks that you're loosely connected with, with those that are actually using your product or
0: service? I love that idea to mix the groups together. A lot of times I say, oh, no, I keep my current clients and future clients totally separate. You have to remember that the purpose of this gathering, number one, first and foremost, is for you to add value. And the way to add value is if your guests get to meet and have interesting conversations with other people that are in your town. So make that your first priority. And I promise you, the Mm -hmm. business, the deals, the friendships will come afterwards. But focus first on hosting a good event. So I tell people, your first party should just be easy. Don't think about business. Don't think about networking or relationships. Just host it with people that you feel comfortable with. That could be your neighbors, your employees, your clients, your customers, folks you went to high school with, random people on LinkedIn that you haven't seen a year ago, but you remember having a good conversation. Don't make your first party stressful. What I mean by that is don't reach from the top shelf of, oh, I'm really trying to land this deal. I'm really trying to impress this person. Let me invite them to my gathering. Do that later once you've learned some of these skills. Just like going to the gym, hosting is a muscle that you can build. You can get to be good at that. You mentioned before what I did the first night of FinCon. And for those who didn't attend this conference, we went to FinCon, 1,700 people are there. And they have an opening night party or gathering. And at most years at FinCon, it's simply just an open bar. And you go and you see your old friends. Maybe you work up the courage to go say hi to somebody new. But most people don't do that. What I did, I worked with the organizers and we said, hey, how can we make the first 30 minutes about having a lot of new conversations to really launch this conference into the area of getting people to talk to five or 10 different new people and then let them mix and mingle on their own afterwards? So we led icebreakers for a lot of new people, and we got a lot of people in that room to at least go up and gather and say hi to somebody new. That's really what the purpose of these parties are, is to create new conversations.
1: Yeah, it was great. I spoke with like three, I think there were three or four others in our group who I'd never met before, never spoken with before, and we had an engaging conversation for the first like 20 or 30 minutes. It was was good. It was very good. So, and I I get what you're saying about the muscle. You don't want to make it so difficult that you're going to be sore after the event that you're never going to do it again. You want to make it so that it's easy, repeatable, and you're going to be willing and see the benefits of doing it again next quarter, right? That's really the goal.
0: I just thought about with your question, oh, how long does this take? It's probably like with you and podcasting that for your very Mm -hmm. first interview, you probably, oh my God, the prep and the camera and the setup and the staging and the lighting and the scripts and everything. And my guess is now as far into this as you are, you can crank these out, you know, because it's a craft that you've mastered and a skill set that you've built. It's the same thing with hosting.
1: Yeah, great analogy. And now I've also learned the things that I don't necessarily have to do, so I have other people doing them. (laughs) Because now I know how to do it so I could teach somebody else to do it and not take up my time delegating and elevating, like you mentioned earlier. We all have to do that as well as entrepreneurs. So I'm going to take a little bit of a turn here for a second. So I got to ask, what was it like to live out many people's childhood dreams when you rented out an entire indoor water park for your 40th birthday? How to ask that?
0: Oh my God, that was so much fun. Two years ago, I rented out one of America's largest indoor water parks called Kalahari. It's north of Austin, Texas. They have them. There's a few of them, actually a fascinating business story, the guy who's behind it. And I rented it out for about 40 of my friends and we just rode water slides all morning long. It was so much fun. But I'll tell you something funny. I'm getting older now, right? I'm like 42. And as much fun as I had, I was so sore the next day from riding these water slides, from banging around, from running up the stairs. Many of us were just like, oh, that was so much fun. But we are not as young as we used to be. It was fun. It was a blast.
1: Well, listen, the good news is you didn't have to worry about doing another one next quarter. So it was okay to be a little sore. It didn't Amen. matter, right? Amen. There you go. Well, that sounds like a lot of fun. Sounds like a great way to spend, whether it's your 40th or any other birthday party, as long as you could physically do it. Sounds like a great way to spend your birthday for sure. So listen, we end every show asking each of our guests the same last question, because this is the Midland Money Mindset, and we are all about joy, on this show, which is what did you do today that brought you joy and put you in the right mindset for success?
0: I get fired up by having conversations with people. And I had, I think, one or two phone calls this morning. I had a late night last night. I was a little burned out and stressed this morning. And sometimes when I step away from my computer, I get off the screens and I connect with people to have a nice phone call. It really fires me up and reminds me about why I do what I do. So that's helpful for me to remember.
1: Amazing. Great stuff. I got a copy of your book. I'm in the middle of reading it. I was at your session at FinCon. So we're looking at it. We do events semi annually with families, not with the same template that you have. So I'm going to be looking to, I don't know if it's steal or borrow some yes, great ideas steal from it. the book and implement it. So thank you for that. I really encourage people to check out the two hour cocktail party. I see a lot of value in it. And I think a lot of our listeners would also glean a lot of value in it so we're going to have all your information in the show notes nick but if people want to contact you learn more about you grab a copy of the book what's the easiest and the best place for them to go about doing that
0: the name of the book is the two-hour cocktail party how to build big relationships with small gatherings i recorded the audible for it you can also buy it on kindle you can buy the paperback check it out at amazon or wherever you buy books online And there's some articles that I'm going to include, like how to host a kid's birthday party, or the best event platforms for collecting RSVPs, or even how to host a networking event. And I'll include those in the show notes. I'll send them to you afterwards. But I'm very active on social media. And on social media, I'm at Nick Gray News. And if you find me there or you go to my website at www.nickgray.net, I have a little list of the 10 things you can do for your next party or event that'll help you turbocharge it to make it a little bit better.
1: Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Nick. And I hope next time we see each other, I'll be telling you about how awesome my last two-hour cocktail party was and enjoy the day.
0: I can't wait. Thank
1: you so much. I'll see you later. I want to thank Nick Gray for being a guest on the Mintland Money Mindset. Nick is a successful entrepreneur that clearly knows what it takes to scale and sell a business. His most recent business venture as the best-selling author of The Two-Hour Cocktail Party has created quite the buzz. I suggest you check it out. He shares some excellent ideas on how to utilize these events to create and add value to those around you. Nick Gray and The Two-Hour Cocktail Party can be found across most social media platforms. All the contact information needed to find them can be found in the show notes. Thank you for joining us this week on the Midland Money Mindset. Make sure you visit our website at midlandmoneymindset.com and smash the subscribe button so you don't miss a show. We encourage you to help others find our valuable content, and please don't keep us a secret. You can also schedule an Is There a Fit Call right from our website or by using the link that you'll find in the description section of your podcast player or app. And be sure to join us for our next episode to learn more about getting your mind right when it comes to all things money.
0: The opinions voiced in the Midland Money Mindset Show with Lawrence Sprung are for general information only and are not intended to provide specific advice or recommendations for any individual. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. All indices are unmanaged and may not be invested into directly. Investing involves risk, including possible loss of principal.